Greetings, friends and fellow daemons. This episode will feature another reading from my forthcoming book, The Nebu Generator, A Pharaonic Formula for Wealth Creation. These are the four chapters under the lies of a pap, and it's four basic lies. Lie number one, there is a free lunch. Lie number two, debt is good. Lie number three, you don't deserve to be wealthy. And lie number four, the get-rich-quick scheme. I hope you enjoy these, and look out for the Nebu Generator book to drop April 30th. And here we go. Chapter 5, lie number 1, there is a free lunch. The old saying of conventional wisdom, there is no free lunch, works hand in hand with another. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. No free lunch is a reminder that anything worthy is worth working for, and nothing is really free. If it looks free on the surface, you can be sure there is a hidden price, or maybe a price that comes later. There is actually a sound, logical, and observable meaning to it. Everywhere in nature, all organic beings must put in the work first, before they get the reward. This is true for the wolf that has to spend many hours hunting and scrounging before finding enough to eat. It is true for the bee who must fly around tirelessly visiting flower after flower, avoiding numerous hazards before finally getting the reward of the pollen. And it's true for you. You have to put in the hours at work before you get a paycheck. The wolf learns that if someone is bringing him his food, it's probably because he's about to get shot, trapped, or caged. If the bee has flowers set right outside his door, it might mean he is in an artificial human-managed beehive. And if someone is giving you money for no apparent reason, you can be sure there is a reason hiding in there somewhere, a hidden price that likely will appear at a time when you are least expecting it. Despite all this conventional wisdom and clear examples from nature, people all over the world act under the delusion that they can get something for free or that they deserve what they have not earned. This is a form of what is also called mystical thinking and signifies a fundamental misapprehension of basic cause and effect. Legitimate sciences and economic disciplines may be devoted to understanding the truth of causality, but in the realm of politics, such lines become completely blurred. Power-possessing sources want you to believe that there is such a thing as a free lunch, so you will spend beyond your resources and become indebted, in other words, enslaved, to them and their apparent handouts. This is where these multiple personalities come into play and run you ragged. By allowing this false perspective to go unchallenged, various personalities within your psyche are given justification for their existence. They will make the financial decisions for responsible you while responsible you is actually asleep. But when responsible you wakes up later, 
it is still you that is responsible for the bill. Ideas matter. In a very real way, the ideas you accept into your psyche change the structure of your psyche, thus changing the universe you live in. Remember, one of the lessons of magic is that changes in your subjective universe may cause corresponding changes in the objective universe. We have this tendency to think that we can be anything we want and know a little bit of everything, but the truth is that even in the marketplace of ideas, you are what you eat. Nihilism and nihilistic systems will take you down because ideologies like this present no pathway to personal success. If you want to be successful, you need to fill your mind with patterns, systems, memes, and narratives that not only think personal success is good, but that there are specific actions you can make to begin moving in that direction. This is the essence of magic. If you think wealth is not possible or permissible for you for whatever reason, you simply will not achieve it. The idea that there is a free lunch is prevalent in modern culture. A lot of the ideas you encounter out there in the world of horrors are based on the idea that there can be a free lunch. Politicians base many of their campaign ideas on this, and the masses keep believing it. You need to be smarter than the masses. If the herd is going one way, you need to go the other. If they follow the right-hand path, you need to follow the left. No free lunch is as true in magic as it is in ordinary life. Even the most primitive forms of magic acknowledge you have to give or sacrifice something to get something. The Nebu system merely suggests that you take this idea out of the ritual chamber and into the real world in a very practical and tangible way. After all, the only reason to study laws in the ritual chamber is to be better equipped at dealing with them in the real world. The ritual chamber is best understood as a hyper-reality rather than an escape from reality. No free lunch is just as true in economics as it is in magic. There are many crooked systems out there that try to teach otherwise, that there is a free lunch, but some bad guys took it from you. This ties back to the false idea that money doesn't really exist, that it's just a construct created by power groups to try and control people. Here again, politicians and demagogues will play off this idea to try and trick people into believing they can get something for nothing. Free health care, free college, and so forth, even something like free public school, isn't really free as it's paid for out of tax dollars. And anyhow, even if it was free, why would they have to force people to use it? Does it even make sense to say something is free if it is being forced on you? Don't let yourself get caught up in the mass hysterias induced by these lies. Value is real. Wealth is real. And all are well within your grasp the moment you open your eyes to them. Lie number two, debt is good. Nearly all the great societies of antiquity had very clear ideas about debt and about it not being a good thing. 
You can find strong ideas from the Persians, Egyptians, and Greeks about the danger of debt. That's too much of it. Could actually lead you into slavery. Debt slavery, that is. Debt slavery was a way elder civilizations dealt with the problem of indebtedness as they accurately perceived that debt, though it begins personally, actually has a tendency to spread and in the end can lower the standard of living for all members of a given society. As Hamlet's uncle told him, neither a borrower nor a lender be. But in this day and age, debt is considered fine even though it is still really a pathway to slavery of a different sort. There are numerous social influences, governmental and private, which seek to purvey the myth that debt is somehow good for you. Many feel obligated to buy into the myth, even though every individual who has gone into debt knows somewhere deep inside that it is more like a deadly poison. It is deadly because it makes you a slave. You cannot own yourself fully, if you owe even a little to others. This is the definition of sovereignty, that you own yourself. How can you find sovereignty in a spiritual sense when you don't have it even in a practical material sense due to indebtedness? So, one thing that must be done in order to be free is to be free of debt. Now, there may be exceptions to this, where you must temporarily indebt yourself for the sake of home ownership, higher learning, or perhaps obtaining an automobile. But any situation where unsecured debt from credit cards and the like can roll month to month indefinitely must be eliminated. And for most, until they fully realize all throughout their being that debt is an evil influence that will lead to a lifetime of slavery, they will never make the steps necessary to be rid of it. You must learn to hate and despise debt from the lowest to the highest levels of your being. As Set looks upon a pep, you must view debt as a parasitic pariah and slay it with warrior-like zeal. The end game of all of this is to have savings and investments. This is where you can start doing the real alchemy of turning lead into gold, using the magic of time and compound interest to grow your wealth. But you will never make it here if you still have debt. Any sort of unsecured, out-of-control debt will completely prevent you from successfully saving for the future, just as surely as it robs you of your sovereignty. Part of the visage of the world of horrors is that everyone else is running up all kinds of debt and is doing just fine. That's part of the lie. Credit card companies and others like to purvey a myth that using that card everywhere is a sign of success. That using such and such black or platinum card must mean you're a real high roller. Likewise, governments purvey the myth by talking about how national debt and the boom and bust cycle are a natural and normal part of our collective economic growth. You must see through these external lies just as surely as you see through them in yourself. Gurdjieff might call this an aspect of consideration, rating your life in relation to other people's lives. 
seeing everyone else out there flagrantly running up so much debt might lead you to think there's something wrong with you if you don't have debt. In fact, the opposite is true. You must think in terms of yourself, your own situation, and your own boundaries. You will never expand your boundaries unless and until you can see them with some degree of objectivity. In terms of money, this equates to the idea of living within your means. It means never using credit to buy something simply because you don't have the money for it. If you can't afford it, don't buy it. Period. Some say they just use credit cards for an emergency. Credit cards are the worst things to use for an emergency because now you're adding indebtedness to an already bad situation. Some people like to say they use credit cards to build up their credit score so that they can one day get a home loan. This might have been true 50 years ago, but not today. Loan officers have a variety of other things they look at other than credit card usage. And anyhow, they give out home loans to anyone these days, or maybe you hadn't heard about the housing bubble and crash of 2008. That's why that happened. Too much credit extended to people who couldn't afford it. And you know what the government did after bailing out all the banks after all that mess? They went right back to doing the same thing. Easy money, easy loans. So you really have to get over the idea that debt is somehow good. The image that the credit card companies promote in their advertising is that using their card and going into debt makes you smarter or even more attractive. That using their card and going into debt means you're a grown-up who knows a lot about finance. These are all lies. You must see through them all and purge them from your being. You really can go from substantial to super substantial, but you must realize that if you're in debt, you're not even substantial. There's that old song, Don't you call me St. Peter, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And in a very real way, this is true. If you're in debt, you don't own your soul. You're not even a real and free person. If you have somewhere in your mind this idea that money somehow isn't real, then it's easy to tell yourself that debt likewise isn't real, that it doesn't really matter. But you'll be wrong. It is real, and it matters. So if you're in debt, getting out of debt has to be your number one priority. If you're in debt, it is impossible to acquire wealth. Do the math and figure out your net worth. Any headway you could possibly make from savings or investments will be eaten up by debt. The average interest rate for a credit card is 15 to 21 percent. The average return on stocks in a 401k is 8 to 10 percent. Any headway you could possibly make on the market will be eaten up by your debt. The debt has to end before the investment stage can begin. And the debt will never go away by itself. It will only be gone if you do the right thing and pay it off. And to do that, you need the spirit of a warrior. You need to have your killing face on and your rifle aimed at debt. Don't even think about investing if you still have debt. Don't talk about it either. You'll only give reality to the false image of yourself that will inevitably trick you into thinking there is a smarter way to get around the debt. 
It's wrong. You can't. You have to confront it and deal with it head on. So if you are a rational person and have a bunch of unsecured credit card debt, you should have no higher aim in your life other than to pay it off and be free of it. Just like a rational man who is imprisoned can have no higher goal but to escape and be free, you should have no higher goal than to pay off that debt and be free. Now that we've put the fear of debt into you, it's a good time to back up a little and point out that there really are two categories of debt. We can call them good debt and bad debt. Good debt is basically investments in things that are costly, yet so valuable that, in the end, you'll gain more from the investment than you will lose on the interest rates or fees for the loan. A home loan is a good example. If you have bought wisely, whatever you pay, the bank and interest, will be eclipsed by equity generated by rising home values. Another possible good debt is investment in education. If decisions here are made wisely, it can result in a better return later in life. However, there are many conditional factors which go into this as well, as there are many liberal arts avenues in higher education which won't actually help with earning potential. Step cautiously here and be aware that due to all the government money available in student loan programs, the universities themselves push for degrees. Remember the university gets paid when your loan is approved and has no further interest in what you do with the degree later or even that you complete a degree program since they've made their money from the loan. We might also include automobiles in the category of good debt, but most of the value they give back is in freedom of transportation, and this is also largely dependent on your circumstances. Many people who live in large urban centers never need to buy a car, but in rural areas, owning a car is often necessary for survival. The type of car can have a lot to do with it as well. On average, a new vehicle depreciates 19% in the first year, half of which occurs immediately after you take possession. It continues to drop about 15% in the second and third years. As it reaches five years, depreciation slows considerably until it becomes negligible, usually at the 10-year mark. Of course, there are variations and exceptions. Certain prized models will depreciate less or even appreciate based on market trends. We recommend Michael Aquino's book, Ghost Rides, for more on how to minimize losses over a long-term stream of classic sports car purchases. Either way, you just need to be able to justify the expense for the value it will bring. If you are not already at the X3 stage of this system and collecting cars for joy and leisure, then the smartest purchase is really just a used car at the five-year mark as the price has gone down about 50% and it's still in relatively good shape. If you're not a gearhead and can't effectively evaluate the condition of used cars, I recommend a reputable dealer like CarMax that offers reasonable care service plans. More on cars when we discuss the S2 engine. Bad debt 
is the kind of debt that does not have any kind of return and only costs you more in the long run. The best example is credit card debt. For many people, this is really the main concern because credit cards are easy to obtain and easy to max out. Too much of the bad kind of debt will inhibit your ability to utilize the good kind of debt. It can also inhibit your chances for success in many other spheres of life and will prohibit you from achieving any kind of meaningful wealth. Eliminating this kind of debt is a key in activating engine S2. But before we get to that point, you need to work on getting it clear in your mind. There is bad debt, but really, all debt is bad. Lie number three. You don't deserve to be wealthy. In his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle wrote that every art and every kind of inquiry, and likewise every act and purpose, seems to aim at some good. And that, as health is the aim of medicine, ships the aim of shipbuilding, and victory the aim of war, so wealth is the aim of economy. Wealth partakes of the universal value of the good and the purpose of an economy to study economics and understand economic principles is a practice that will lead toward wealth. In many ways, modern conventional society has taken this idea and actually reversed it. Wealth does not partake of the universal value of good since it leads to inequality. Therefore, the aim of the study of economy cannot be wealth, but inequality and social justice. Somewhere, probably in the Dark Ages, this emerged as a social construct often manifesting in the form of slavery. A certain group of people deserved to have the wealth, while another group did not, and were considered in some sense the property of the other group. Slavery is indeed a slippery idea, as it has morphed around over the ages. Sometimes it's determined by race, sometimes by criminality or indebtedness. In modern times, we have seen it applied via notions of class. For instance, in communist states where individuals deemed to be members of a nebulous bourgeois class would be apprehended and sent to forced labor camps. In the end, it is the idea that one group of people can be wealthy only at the expense of another group of people. This is an erroneous way of thinking about wealth, that it is a zero-sum game, and that the only way to get wealth is to take it from others. This is problematic in that it legitimizes some forms of theft. Modern governments are based on this idea and attempt to cover up the act of theft that is taxation by declaring it for the common good and justifying it with the mystical authority of the social contract. Central authority also uses this lie to justify theft of other property, like land and vehicles. For instance, in 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued an executive order giving government the authority to take gold from American citizens in order to cement its monopoly on the printing of currency. What did they do with all that nasty, wicked gold? You guessed it, Fort Knox. Around the same time, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, Adolf Hitler was seizing gold and other forms of wealth from the Jewish citizens of his country. 
Some curious tinting of the lens of history has condemned Hitler while lauding FDR, even though the only difference is that one sought to legitimize theft based on ethnicity, while the other sought legitimacy based on class. The idea that you don't deserve to be wealthy found an enthusiastic reiteration in Marxism, which teaches that society is divided into two classes, the bourgeoisie capitalists, who control the means of production, and the proletariat, the slaves who must work for the bourgeoisie. The first problem with this theory is that it ignores the role of government. If government has the ultimate authority to enforce taxation and theft, then clearly it is the political class that has control, since they have the ultimate authority to use force and coerce either the bourgeoisie or the proletariat. This results in an incomprehensible mishmash of rules and legislation that has the end result of punishing success and rewarding failure. The second problem is that those who possess the means of production, in which Marx meant capitalists and entrepreneurs, don't actually keep the working class down. Quite the contrary. By allowing them to use the means and participate in production, the impoverished can begin generating wealth for themselves in a way that uplifts them from poverty. As Mark Gaffney, the co-founder and director for the Center of World Spirituality, once said, Capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty than any other force in history, and has done so through voluntary exchange. Communism tried to lift people out of poverty through coercion, but wound up killing countless millions. What does it mean to lift people out of poverty? It means babies not dying. It means mouths being fed. It means girls going to school and getting educated. It means a response to slavery that never existed in the world before. It means that all the values of the great spiritual traditions get enacted on two levels, by ending the physical oppression of poverty and by opening a gateway for human beings to be able to grow emotionally, morally, spiritually, and socially. Other myths circulate around the idea of the evil of the Industrial Revolution. Here they will focus on various boogeymen like child labor and unsafe factory conditions and completely overlook the evidence that almost everyone experienced a serious increase the most recent evidence suggests that blue-collar real wages doubled between 1810 and 1850. What was really happening is that for maybe the first time in history, ordinary people were able to afford nice things and enjoy a new level of independence. Consider here the observations of Whole Foods CEO John Mackey. Just 200 years ago, prior to the Industrial Revolution, 85% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, defined as less than $1 a day. That number is now only about 16%. Free enterprise capitalism has created prosperity, not just for a few, but for billions of people everywhere. Another wonderful example of cultural nourishment from free enterprise is the Art Nouveau movement in the late 1800s. Suddenly a young person could work a job that paid enough to have their own space and buy nice things for it, 
like cool lampshades and other creature comforts. An overall increase in the standard of living was opening up new possibilities for self-expression, creativity, and indulgence. Culture began moving toward new opportunities for independence. And also, this is the time period in which Aleister Crowley, Gurdjieff, Blavatsky, and various other spiritual entrepreneurs began appearing with new models and methods for expressing will and finding spiritual success. At least part of the reason for this sudden burst of creativity must be attributed to vibrant economies in the West, providing unprecedented access to information and information resources like publishing. Clearly, there is something very different at work here than Marx's zero-sum game. The truth is that wealth is not generated at the expense of wealth for others. In fact, the opposite is true. Wealth is only generated by interacting and providing value to others. As the great economist Thomas Sowell wrote, at least half of the popular fallacies about economics come from assuming that economic activity is a zero-sum game in which what is gained by someone is lost by someone else. But transactions would not continue unless both sides gained, whether in international trade, employment, or renting an apartment. Wealth does not grow by itself in a bubble. Obtaining wealth via coercion has an opposite effect. As people become aware that they are being robbed, they will offer less and hoard more. In addition, the robber, often a form of legitimized central authority, knows on some level that its wealth is obtained by coercion and not by the free will of the people being robbed. Therefore, a central authority is not motivated to provide better services, which is why certain government service providers, the post office, the DMV, the military, always seem on a downward pattern as far as their quality. It is as though space for free will is created with the growth of free markets. They feed each other. Freedom is a necessary component to generating wealth. Another popular myth of collectivism is the idea of monopoly. The idea is that if people are allowed to be free, then eventually one person or corporation will inevitably become more successful than others, gobble up all the resources, and use their power to eliminate any competition. Therefore, an impartial, absolute central authority is required to prevent anyone from getting too successful and to keep the playing field level. The reality is that there are no actual documented examples of any monopolies ever other than the ones created by central authority. It is they who have a monopoly on the use of force, police, military, collection of taxes, incarceration, on currency, Federal Reserve, and on education, public schools, federal student loans, and a variety of other areas. The other problem is that central authority is never really impartial, 
as the temptation to use that absolute power is so great. So they will encourage further monopolies in the private sector by picking winners and awarding contracts to favorites. Think Monsanto, Lockheed Martin, and so forth. And by allowing cronies to lobby for special treatment via legislation. As the economist and philosopher Murray Rothbard once said, The state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment for services rendered, but by coercion. It is a contradiction of cosmic proportions that people think monopolies are such an imminent threat to humanity, but that the solution is to give monopoly power to a certain singular organization, in this case government. The truth, of course, is that the power was never actually given, but rather taken. Where do you think the line falls here may be a subject for further study, and your perspective on it is certainly subject to change over time. The value in considering any of this is that in relation to your own goals of wealth generation, it can create a false moralism that will actually work against you. The idea at the bottom of all this is that some wealth is okay, but too much wealth somehow puts you over the line, makes you a bad guy, makes you bourgeois. Since there is no way of objectively quantifying how much is too much, it means the line will always be shifting based on propaganda and public sentiment, and you will always be struggling with your subconscious guilt and self-defeating attitude. If you wish to be successful with this system, you will need to overcome any self-judgment or self-deprecation. Don't beat yourself up for wanting to be wealthy. It is natural, healthy, and attainable for anyone and everyone. If you've spent some time on the left-hand path, you've probably encountered, and hopefully rejected, the idea of original sin. This idea, developed mostly by the Apostle Paul and St. Augustine, holds that you came into this world already a sinner because you have genitals. Back in the Dark Ages, this created all sorts of self-hating pathologies in the human psyche. We only started to really get free of it a few hundred years ago, only to have it replaced with the secular collectivist version of original sin, the sin of desiring wealth. Of course, there's a lot of moralistic ideas about wealth being a sin in the Bible as well. For instance, the famous line from Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We do not suggest that you love money, but neither do we suggest that you reject it as a metaphysical evil. As we will discuss later, money or capital is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Humans naturally seek a modicum of exchange in order to facilitate fluidity 
and accuracy of ordinary exchanges of value. Such a thing need neither to be loved nor hated, but attention to it and the responsible management of it will help you keep your options in life open. In turn, this can lead you closer to the things you love, like freedom, independence, and other responsible people. This idea of a original sin can also be considered a metaphor for debt. You are born into this world with a huge debt, a spiritual debt, and so you work it off with dedication to the church. This idea transforms into the idea that debt is one's lot in life, that it's part of the natural state of living that must be tolerated. Again, you don't deserve to be wealthy. If you want to be wealthy, you need to cut this lie out of your psyche. You need to recognize collectivism and its contemporary variants as the self-hating anti-success ideologies that they are. As long as you carry around the idea that you should really feel guilty about being successful, or that there is something criminal about being successful, you will always have trouble attaining success and generating wealth. Whether your own or another's, you should resent wealth no more than you resent your own genitals. You cannot serve two masters. If you have one personality that wants wealth, but another personality that thinks wealth is evil, bad, unethical, or uncool, you'll never make it. The unacknowledged conflict between the divided cells would eat up all your time and energy, and you won't have any left over for starting the engines of wealth generation. The idea that you don't deserve wealth is a lie. Remember that being wealthy, independent, and happy is something that you were designed for. Set wants to get through the night and see the sun rise again. Only a pep, the serpent of delusion, works against it. Therefore, you must enter this work with the Peshkent knife in hand and be prepared to cut away the many delusions that beset you in the world of horrors. Lie number four, the get-rich-quick scheme. Are you convinced that you are so much cleverer than everyone else that you will find some magic key that will allow you to bypass the hard work needed to produce wealth? This is the get-rich-quick scheme. Belief in this lie, and it is especially prevalent in America, opens you up to all sorts of manipulations. Everyone who has marched their way to ruin via the entertainment industry, everyone who's invested in a pyramid scheme, day trading lessons, etc. The end lesson we learn from such action is that if it's worth having, it's worth working for. The simple fact is that there is no way to make something from nothing. Even in basic magic, creating wealth is a process of willfully applying work attention and energy over time. There is no quick way and no shortcut. Sure, some people are really good at some things and go faster. That doesn't mean they don't put work into it. Some people shy away from this word work, but have you noticed how a lot of people on the left-hand path have this habit of referring to their magical efforts as workings? There's a reason for that. Because a working implies something greater than spells. Casting a spell takes a couple of minutes, while a working indicates something larger and requiring more effort, 
again, thought, will, and energy applied over time. But people want to believe this lie so badly. In particular, people in dire straits desperately want to believe there is such a thing as a get-rich-quick scheme. This sort of faulty thinking combined with desperation makes you vulnerable to manipulation. It makes you open to the lies of charlatans and hucksters, especially the sort you see lurking around in the music industry, investment industry, real estate industry, new age, online schools, and so on. Remember all the stories about medieval alchemists who spent their lives trying to convince European kings that they would turn lead into gold. Edward Kelly, of Enochian Keys fame, after splitting from John Dee, spent the rest of his days trying to convince King Rudolph and everyone else that he had the key for lead into gold and would reveal it soon. The end result for him was prison and death. Sure, you can carry on a ruse and fleece people for a while. Remember, it's not that hard if you find the right people because they want to believe so badly. But eventually, all will be revealed. More importantly, if your attitude to achieving wealth is based on fooling people, you have the wrong attitude. Nothing you gain will be kept for long. And the fact that you are essentially robbing others will eat away at your soul. It's also true that some people do get lucky. But if your plan relies on luck rather than will, this can create a mental attitude that really makes success even less likely. Why? Because you're taking will out of the equation. Once you take will out, you're subject not only to the randomness of the universe, but also to the machinations of predators and psychic vampires. When you enact the fire of will, you burn away such evils. Here's some popular get-rich-quick schemes to watch out for and avoid. Money magic. The occult and New Age industry is awash in books that purport to give you spells or incantations that will help you produce money out of thin air. Take a closer look. Do the people buying these books look like they are doing any better? Nine out of ten cases of so-called money magic are really just cases of the blind leading the blind. Don't be blind and don't be led. And if someone tells you the key is to burn a dollar bill, tell them no thanks and put that dollar someplace else where you can unlock the magic of compound interest. Entertainment and events. Budding musicians and actors are desperate to make it. This makes them vulnerable and very subject to manipulation. Hollywood, the music industry, and all their derivatives attract sharks and parasites ready and willing to exploit the unaware. People who find and maintain success in these arenas develop a certain inner toughness and a certain carny mentality, but more often than not, people find themselves either consumed or drained. Be doubly wary if you tread these waters and learn to recognize when you are in too deep. It is always good to have alternatives to fall back on. Day trading. 
This was originally a mythology from the 90s that arose with the dot-com bubble, but has persisted. When someone brashly announces on a social media list or at a cocktail party that they are a day trader, suddenly they seem smarter and everyone wants to know them better. In the old days, you could accomplish the same effect by claiming to be a hypnotist. Learn to see through this rubbish and don't fall victim yourself. The fact is that real day traders must overcome two significant barriers, high short-term capital gains taxes and trading commissions. Assuming an average of 29 trades a day at $10 a pop, the typical day trader would have to make $72,500 per year just to break even. So next time you hear someone going on about this, recognize them for the braggart they are. Give them the hand and move on. Certainly, don't quit your day job just to sit at home and piss away what's left of your money on penny stocks. There's simply no way an individual can compete with algorithms. Lottery. The conventional wisdom here is that the lottery is a tax on the poor. Didn't you notice all these lotteries appear to be state-sponsored? Add gambling to the list of things that are illegal, unless central authority wants a piece. There's plenty of statistics and facts on the lottery out there, but two of the main reasons to avoid are, one, they are regressive tax on the poor because it costs relatively more for a poor person to buy them, and two, it's like a punitive tax on the poor and uneducated because they are the ones most likely to buy them. Have you ever been trying to buy a soda at a convenience store and have to wait to check out because someone in front of you is taking up all the cashier's time buying lottery tickets? You need to understand that these people are the target market for lottery tickets. Don't become a target. Internet business opportunities. Have you gotten an email from a Nigerian prince asking for a loan? This is one of the biggest scams in internet history that has been going on for decades in various iterations. They always feed on the idea that you must spend money to make money. Don't get taken in. Delete these emails. Ponzi schemes. This term entered the popular consciousness in 2008 when former stockbroker and investment advisor Bernie Madoff admitted to the largest fraud in U.S. history divesting 4,800 clients of $64.8 billion. The scandal coincided with the financial crisis of 2008, and though Madoff was in no way directly responsible for the crisis, he did make a nice scarecrow for everything the left thought was evil about capitalism. A similar thing happened during the Great Depression, in which many such anti-capitalism scarecrows emerged. If someone had been already suspicious about the whole concept of investment, Madoff and the media could have easily reinforced this. The essence of the Ponzi scheme is to rob Peter to pay Paul. A charlatan offers an attractive investment opportunity, often framed with exciting investment catchphrases like hedge fund futures trading, high yield investment, or offshore investment, to describe or really obfuscate, their investment strategy. They will initially pay high yields to attract investors and excite and entice current investors to pay more. 
But as they collect new investors, they begin a cascade effect, using the investments from new dupes to pay out for the old dupes. So they are always in need of rushing in new people. The thing to remember here is the derivative of no free lunch, which is, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Investment is really based on some simple and easy to understand principles, which we will cover in the third engine. But all you must remember is that you shouldn't invest in anything that you really don't understand. Don't let hustlers push you into thinking you're just not smart enough to understand investing so that you give control over to them. Be wary of so-called experts, be they from the financial or academic worlds, especially if they seem to have too much interest in convincing you of something. Pyramid Schemes Have you ever gone in for what you thought was a job interview? Ended up sitting in a room with a bunch of strangers listening to some guy talk about his success story, which ended with him buying some revolutionary product, maybe cosmetics, nutritional supplements, or a new water purification system, and walked away wondering what the heck just happened. Then you may have encountered a pyramid scheme. I include pyramid schemes to include such variations as multi-level marketing or MLM in my discussion because they present themselves to the desperate and naive. They masquerade as real jobs, even as high-grade professional jobs, when really they're just trying to rope you into a long-term sales agreement for some products you don't really need. I got nearly suckered into a couple of these operations in my time and have learned to identify them by sense of smell. They feed on the myth of the get-rich-quick scheme. They attempt to bedazzle you with their glamour and finery to lure you into their web and bleed you dry. Some popular examples of such companies include Advocare Nutritional Supplements, Mary Kay Cosmetics, and the notorious Amway Home Care Products whose class action suits have brought them notoriety on 60-minute specials. They may disguise themselves with different industry masks, but the fundamental game beneath them all is the same. Also called multi-level marketing, the stated concept behind pyramid schemes is cut out the middleman. This refers to the middleman of product distribution. Distributors are companies that make their money by taking products from the manufacturer to a retail outlet where customers can then purchase them. A distributor will have their own fees for the producer retailer, which will cause them to increase their prices, increasing the final cost for the consumer. It is always in the interests of producer and retailer to lower their costs. So the idea of reducing the impact of distribution is totally rational. For instance, Walmart has reduced middleman costs by getting products direct from manufacturers and increasing their stores to warehouse sizes. Outlet malls are another example, and that's why they're so big and often located outside city limits. Amazon is blazing trails here as well, becoming itself a large warehouse and attempting to bypass one of the biggest middlemen, the U.S. Postal Service, by delivering products with their own fleet of trucks, and maybe one day with their own fleet. 
These all represent legitimate and honest efforts at reducing middleman costs. The pyramid scheme is illegitimate because it seeks to obfuscate the role of employee slash consumer. You join the pyramid initially as a sales representative. But here's the catch. First, you need to buy the product. You are now expected to make your money by selling your inventory to others. These others just buy the product to use like an ordinary customer, or they can join the team and become a sales rep like you did. And if they do that, then you will make a cut of what they sell. So you're motivated not only to sell, but to get more of them on the pyramid. They in turn do the same sell the product, and get new people on the team, increasing their profit and yours. It should be apparent that there is something cultish and cannibalistic about the pyramid scheme. In a regular sales role, you are motivated by a wage and likely a bonus based upon the size or scope of your sale. But in the pyramid scheme, you've already invested in the product. The producer has made their money back, So in the end, they don't really care if you succeed or fail in selling to others. Finding the sales leads, the customer base, is always up to you. In desperation, people start reaching out to friends, family, maybe even co-workers at a conventional job to sell and slash get them on the pyramid. Inevitably, those around them are either turned off by a close associate pushing them to buy or else they fall into the web and become the next level of pyramid marketers. The result is that you lose all your ordinary relationships and find yourself socially surrounded only by fellow pyramid people. Many of these groups have been the subject of allegations of authoritarianism, fostering paranoid attitudes towards insiders who are critical of the organization, and seminars and rallies resembling religious revival meetings. The evidence indicates that while a few high-profile people, the masters at the top of the pyramid, might seem to have become successful, most people involved maintain minimal incomes. An examination of the 1979-1980 tax records in the state of Wisconsin showed that multi-level distributors reported a net loss of $918 on average. Avoid pyramid schemes like the plague. There are so many legitimate ways of establishing income streams that don't jeopardize your friendships, don't feed parasites, and don't require you to buy something. There are even more get-rich-quick schemes out there, but I'm sure by now you're getting this picture. Creating value requires work, and there's no legitimate way of getting around it. A lot of this work will involve doing a deep dive on your own values, and a renewed effort at objectivity and brutal self-honesty. You need to be honest with yourself and try to see things objectively. You will need to address any contradictions, and you will need to really believe that you do deserve to be wealthy. Any lingering doubt will produce contradictions in your being and your actions, and you may find yourself taking three steps back for each step forward. Only after you feel in yourself that you have done adequate house cleaning will you know it is finally time to start firing up the engines of the Nebu generator.